Well, welcome everybody to, to week two in our series on Eucharist and the communion here at New Life downtown. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray to kick us off, and then we'll kind of dive right in. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together to learn more about you through your word and through your church. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to discover the things that you would have us about communion, and that most of all, Lord, you'd be glorified in this time and in our conversation together. We pray these things in your Son's name and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, week two, the table, the Lord's table, our table, and preparing a table. Uh, This has been a fun unit to prepare for uh, with Brian and Rachel Hare, and we're going to dive in this week to the second week in the series. Uh, Last week we did a little bit of introduction and discussion, and this week we're trying to set up some historical views of communion and the Lord's table. Next week will probably be more of an exegetical approach with Brian. He's going to dig into some passages of scripture, uh, talking about different components of the Lord's table that we see presented in the Old and the New Testament. And then in week four, we're going to talk about our own tables. Outside of the Lord's table on Sunday morning, what does it look like to practice fellowship well in our own homes and, and practice the art of fellowship at our own tables? And then finally, in week five, we're going to do a bit of a wrap-up and a Q&A and a little bit of a talk-back on some of these different topics. So just by way of review, for those of you that may not have been able to be here last week, we spent a lot of time discussing these two phrases. Do this in remembrance of me, and this is my body. Two statements that Jesus made in Luke's account of the Lord's Supper. And we were trying to dive into, in, in group discussion a little bit, what does that mean? What did Jesus mean when he said, do this in remembrance of me? And what did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body? Uh, A lot of different perspectives have surfaced throughout the ages, as you can imagine, as to what exactly Jesus was trying to communicate through those two phrases. As we kind of unpack those a little bit more today, I wanted us to dive into a couple passages of Scripture to set that up a little bit for us. Uh, And one of those was John 17. And I'm just going to read that for us real quick. And this is Jesus' high priestly prayer that he prays before the Father uh, on on behalf of the church and his disciples and followers. I do not ask for these things only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Another passage I want us to look at, just have kind of in mind to set up this discussion, Ephesians 4, 1 through 7, and I'm going to jump in in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to be the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Anybody sensing a theme yet? between the two, two passages. And finally, 1 Corinthians ten sixteen through 17. Isn't the cup of blessing that we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Isn't the loaf of bread that we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one loaf of bread, we who are many are one body because we all share the one loaf of bread. I wanted today to be a little, a little bit dialogical, a little bit of a back and forth, as it was last week in certain ways. Uh, and one of the questions I wanted us to talk about this morning early on uh, it wraps around this idea of communions versus communion. Uh, communions versus communion. And right now, I think you could make an argument that while the church universal across the globe is in Christ, one body, the way that we practice the Lord's table looks a little bit more like communions than it does one communion. We break this most holy thing, the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, and then we fracture it, and what should be a means of unity, we use it as a means of distinction and division. And I think that may be a problem that we need to kind of think about a little bit as we dive into this discussion on the views of the Lord's table today. Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they may also be in us. So I showed my hand a little bit. My question for us is, is the church universal currently one? And that's a big conversation, but I'd love to hear a little bit of chatter about that and the way that we practice communion and we practice fellowship. What are you guys' thoughts, just even on a, on a pulse sort of level, where are we at right now? Yeah. That's a fair question. You said to find one, and I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going I'm to make you guys work that one through. Yeah. Are we talking from God's perspective about unity, or are we talking from our perspective? So when we ask that question, is the church currently one? That's a great question. Is it one from a God's eye view or from a man's eye view? I think that's fair. Anybody else want to chirp in on that? What has your experience been of the church? Yeah. Yeah, amen. What was your name again? Steve. Yeah, Steve, that's a great point. So Steve was saying that even by virtue of the way Christ words that prayer in John 17, it seems like Christ is aware early on that he's going to be needing to pray for unity for his church and for his followers. We talked a little bit last week about this golden age mentality where the early church, Acts 2, and sort of following was was completely perfect. They had everything together. They They were perfectly unified. They shared everything in common. And certainly that happened in spaces but then in other spaces, the church was fighting desperately to maintain unity. So from, from its earliest outset, the church has kind of always struggled to live into that prayer that Christ has prayed for us to be one. And I think that that was a great point, too, that I think as our high priest, as noted in Hebrews and in John 17, Christ continues to intercede for us on our behalf. However, from a manward perspective, and I think that was a great division, from a man's eye view, there are certain distinctions, divisions, that are a little bit unfortunate that plague the church and have plagued the church throughout the ages. So at the bottom of the screen, I was kind of noting there the concept of the church visible versus the church invisible. Um, And this is something we're probably all really familiar with, but is attributed initially to a man named Augustine of Hippo. And the basic gist of that was that the church visible is everyone we see when we go to church on Sunday morning, every person in the pew, all churches everywhere, any church you visited and popped into this morning, you would visibly see a number of people. That's the church visible. The church invisible kind of leans on Romans 9 a little bit where Paul says, you know, not all who are Israel are true Israel. It's that idea that there's people showing up, there's people involved in these communities, but they're not necessarily completely plugged into the Holy Spirit, the the community of faith in such a way. So there's a distinction between the people we see, and and we can't even make that distinction, only from a God's perspective, is he able to kind of know who who is in the fold and who is working towards that, or who may not be working towards that. And this all builds towards the communion table. I wanted to have this discussion of unity, because it is supposed to be the penultimate act of union, community, in the church. And in a fractured, fissured church, it feels a little different than it should sometimes. I wanted to throw up this icon, uh, because I wanted to explain some of the imagery, which some of you may be familiar with. But it was the idea that the church was a boat. Early interpreters like Origen, actually picked up on Noah's Ark. And while seeing a very like, plain sense in Noah's story, they also pointed to the Ark as the church, this idea that we as a body of believers are all in this boat. Like the church is one. It's one vessel carrying us throughout time and space together. Sort of the head of that ship, the captain, is obviously Christ. But it's this vessel that we're all in together. So the idea of there being different communions, different sort of distinctions and fissures um, that have arisen out of the Lord's table is a little disconcerting when we think about the idea that we're all supposed to be on this journey together as a body of believers. In fact, early Christian architecture, and, and even now, if you stepped into a cathedral or a cathedral-style church and you look up, uh, the original design behind the architecture was that the whole sort of like arc of the ceiling was supposed to feel like a ship turned upside down. So that even when you came into church on Sunday morning, you were in the ship. It was a, a very tangible, visible sign of that. And again, I'm just kind of trying to build a little bit of our momentum in this conversation on unity and the import of it. So the question of communion is one of unity. Not that we all must be perfectly unified in doctrine. I wanted to pull out this quote from a man named Vincent of Lorenz. He said, Orthodoxy is this, that which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all Christians. And I think that's a little tough. I mean, I think he set that out there, and that's a good thing to strive for, 
But at the same time, what he's describing, I don't know if that has exactly existed. Because we talked about this last week, you know, with 50 different people in the room. There's 50 different views slightly of what's happening, 50 different perspectives. Because we all bring our own experiences, our own thoughts, and our own influences to the way we think about things and we think about faith. So does this idea of building unity around everywhere, always, and by all Christians work? And I'm not trying to downplay the import of doctrine. I mean, you can ask those closest to me that sometimes I can get hung up on that a little bit too much. I love the idea of digging through dogma and systematic theology, historical theology. But to build a church around a perfect system of dogma will, in my humble opinion, always fail. And I think that's why Jesus, in his passing, gave us a meal to remember him by. Because it's, very, it's deeply symbolic, deeply experiential. We can all grasp on it. And certainly there are things that we are called to believe and confess and affirm. I mean, we look at the creeds uh, and we look at you know, the New Testament, things that we, we must as Christians affirm. So I'm not downplaying that. But if we're trying to build unity solely on doctrine, solely on statements of faith, on everywhere, always, and by all Christians, I don't think that that's ever going to happen this side of heaven. I pray that it does, but I don't think that it will. So when we ask, does this exist, our unity stems from something that I hope is a little broader than just being able to sign off on creedal statements and an affirmation of faith, while those things are very, very important. Even so, I think seeking shared perspective can provide shared experience. So one of the reasons that I think it's important to still explore the doctrinal sides of something like the Lord's Table is that the more that we can articulate a common language, a common experience, uh, excuse me, the more we can articulate a common language, that will provide over time a common and shared experience. It gives us language to talk meaningfully about the things that we encounter at the table. Any questions? Feel free to chime in at any point. If you need me to clarify something, you want me to back up, you think I'm totally wrong, I'm okay with that. Um, com- completely okay with that conversation. So we move forward from the early church where this idea of the church as a boat, the ship that we're all in, kind of pushing forward through the, the community of faith. Um, did I skip over strategies for unity? Yeah, there it is. I want to talk about this first. So let's back up. The Reformation, we'll get there. We'll get there. So strategies for unity. In the early church, um, the, the context culturally, socially, politically, economically was pretty different than our own situation now. And I threw that question up there, what's your preferred translation? Anybody? Preferred translation? It's okay. ESV? NASB? NIV? What else? Yeah, New King James Version? Any other versions? Yeah, so that, that question would not have been a conversation in, in the early church at all. Because no one had their own copy of the Bible. You know, it's common in our households for each of us to have about roughly 10 Bibles. If you go home, kind of count on your shelf. Maybe a couple different translations. Maybe they belong to different people. But early Christians weren't actually encountering that question because the church was kind of lucky if it owned all 66 scrolls that were shared amongst the congregations that the elders read aloud on Sunday morning. So the way that we've really built unity out of this idea that we each have a Bible, we each do a 15-minute Devo, 15-minute prayer time, uh, and then individually God kind of speaks to us through those things, and we kind of come together and articulate what we've learned out of those experiences, I think that's a really good thing. I am so happy that we have the Bible in our own vernacular, in our own language, and that we can spend time with God one-on-one. But it was a much more communal emphasis in the early church because even the proclamation of the word was a community experience. Really, your only chance to hear the Bible was when you go to church on Sunday morning and it was read aloud to everybody. And that didn't really begin from a desire for the priesthood to restrict the Bible from the laity. It just was a pragmatic problem. There was no such thing as a printing press. So you couldn't fire off 500 copies of the Bible and hand them out for you know, discount, you know, bargain mode at the door to all, everyone that was visiting your church. It was a very expensive, sacred, carefully kept thing that not everybody had a copy of. So strategies for unity outside of that, because we didn't have this sort of personal, you know, Devo prayer time that we all could kind of talk about and rally around. 
were really the creeds. One of, one of the most important uh, early Christian strategies for unity was the leadership sitting down with the Bible, all the trusted pastors like Glenn, like Brady, and all of their friends kind of getting together and saying, okay, we can't have everybody memorize the whole Bible, so what if we give them something that they can memorize really easily that captures the major points so that they know when they're hearing somebody else speak about God, speak about Jesus, they can kind of test those things against the creed. It was a really easy out-of-pocket way to know, okay, these are all the things that I should affirm as a Christian. And if something's kind of pressing on that, I need to weigh that carefully because they couldn't just go home and pull out their Bible software, jump on Google and be like, Bible verses that talk about the Trinity. And then they'd kind of like look through. But I think that's a luxury we take for granted, right? Like I've totally written papers or done things that where I'm like, oh, I know this is in there somewhere. And then I can find it in like five minutes. Uh, For them, it would be a huge process because they might not even have a Bible or even one of the books of the Bible at home. So the creeds became incredibly important. Communion became huge. It was the sign that you were a Christian. Like this was the meal that you were invited to. It was was kind of like the insider track. Like you were in. Like once you were invited to communion, you were a part of that covenant community. It was very clear. Do Christians eat babies? So this is kind of like an interesting sort of side note, but I wanted to throw this in. Uh, Roman officials, Roman authorities in the first and second century were really confused by communion, because it was called a love feast, like agape, like the idea of love and like coming together as a body. But they ran into some problems with that, because outsiders who were not invited to meal, because that was like the most sacred thing that the church protected, it was for believers, were like, okay, so it's called a love feast. I keep hearing they're eating bodies and blood. What the heck, like, they're already a little uncomfortable with Christians because Christians had sort of thrown off the old ways, the Roman gods, the Greco-Roman gods. And now they, they're not really meshing in, in terms of society. They're kind of standing back from all the public feasts and holidays. Like the way that we celebrate, the way that we celebrate Thanksgiving, not a religious holiday, it's a national holiday, right? They had all these holidays in Rome that revolved around different deities. All of their public holidays revolved around deities. And so Christians were pulling back from those because they're like, we can't go celebrate, you know, this deity and recognize their authority in this big sort of party with everybody because we don't really believe he exists or if he does, maybe, maybe he's a demon. So Christians pull back, but outsiders are hearing that Christians are eating body and blood. They're thinking, they're, this rumor gets circulated that Christians, actually what's happening at communion is they're, they're eating babies. They're, they're cutting up and eating the body and drinking the blood of a baby. And then on top of that, the name Love Feast gets kind of confused, gets kind of twisted, and a lot of the Romans outside looking in are thinking that this is sort of an orgy, essentially. I don't think there's any other way to say that. That the early Christians would get together, and one passage uh, describes it, not from the New Testament, but an external source describing Christians looking in. He's like, so basically Christians share everything in common, right? Like he's pulling from Acts 2, he's like, they share everything in common. He's like, I've heard even their wives. Like they just kind of share everything around. So From the outside looking in, communion was really confusing uh, to a lot of the mystery religions and emperor worship culture that was around the early church. However, it was still a major strategy for unity. You know, the church is spreading, it's growing rapidly worldwide, and it is one of the ways in which, is one of the markers in which Christians were able to identify that they were a Christian. They could confess the creeds, they took communion and shared that with one another, and finally, uh, they place themselves underneath the authority of a bishop. And while that may seem a little strange to us, um, to some of us, depending on our backgrounds, the idea there, again, was it, was it was kind of creating this umbrella, this network, this infrastructure, where Christians could learn to trust one another's leaders. You know, if, if I go to Glenn, and, and Lord willing, this isn't going to happen, but if I went to Glenn, I was like, Glenn, I'm, I'm moving to Kansas City. Do you know any pastors there that I can trust? Whose church should I go to? You know, because Glenn is well-networked, because we live in the 21st century, we fly all over the place and travel all over the place, it's likely that Glenn will know someone to point me to. Uh, And at this time, you know, the world was a little bit smaller geographically, but it took way longer to get places. And so the idea that you had trustworthy leaders appointed in every city that you could come and find, you know, when I get to Kansas City, I may not know anybody there, but I know there's a bishop, and if I can find him, I can get plugged into an orthodox, true Christian church, because I know that he's a trustworthy man. His life demonstrates his piety. 
And he's protecting the doctrine of Scripture, which, again, I don't actually have a copy of, but he does. Uh, And so I'm going to kind of place myself underneath his authority, the same way that we place ourselves underneath Glenn's pastoral authority, and kind of trust him to lead us. So those three things, the creeds, communion, and bishops, became really huge for early Christians in terms of self-identifying and also keeping a sense of unity in the church. Any questions there? We just, we just dug into a lot. If not, it's okay. We can keep moving. Great. Persecution in the table. Why did the table, it was already an incredibly important symbol, but why did it become increasingly more important, sacred, precious, guarded over time? Well, in the third and fourth centuries especially, there arose a number of controversies where Christians were being persecuted by the authorities. And one of the ways the authorities would kind of come in, kind of put a little pressure on the church, is that they'd come to the bishop, who we just remember was kind of the guardian of some of these things, and threaten his life if he didn't give up the communion plate and the communion cup from his church, which were probably the most prized and sacred items that any local congregation had at that point. And so under duress or under pressure, pain of death, some of the bishops held on to the stuff and refused to let it go, and they would be burned at the stake, crucified upside down, beheaded. You know, maybe their whole family was killed because they were seeking to protect the faith. But then other bishops or other leaders were like, ah, yeah, I'd rather just kind of give this up than, than, than go through that. We'll get a new plate, we'll get a new communion cup. Um, and as a result of that, these families, these church families that lost families, that lost their lives, lost their leaders who gave up their lives to protect communion for the church, um, were a little frustrated with their churches who kind of lapsed and either handed over you know, the, the holy items of the bread and the wine, you know, the cup and the plate, or maybe they even handed over even, in some ways potentially more valuable, the scrolls that their church had been entrusted to keep to be burnt. And so... There's, there's, there's developing a little bit of tension internally. Not only externally is the, are the officials trying to put pressure on the church, but internally what you're going to see in those centuries is a little bit of angst from Christians that have lo- literally lost people, trying to, you know, given their lives to protect this holy thing. And then other churches that have just sort of handed over holy relics and holy documents to be burned and destroy it, effectively wiping out anybody's access to Scripture in that area. Yeah? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate you saying that. So he was saying, like, tracking back to earlier when we were talking about are we one, that question, are we one, he's saying in light of this and the fact that we have 30,000 Protestant denominations right now, this question of are we one gets a little hairier, a little more difficult to answer. Because from a Godward perspective, yeah, the, the church universal crosses all of those lines. But in a sense that we, if we function as one, we, we share these things, it gets a little hairy, it gets a little tricky. So I kind of wanted to wanted to set that up for us as we continue to build towards this idea of the table. And, and this just gives us a little bit, a brief snippet. Where we're kind of like peeking in at pivotal moments throughout church history and sort of seeing why this table matters so much. So moving from the ancient church, we're skipping, hop, skipping, and jumping over a lot of history. But if we're going to talk about the Reformation, a couple key points that affect this conversation around the Reformation age, which is between roughly... 1550 and 1700. That's sort of when the Reformation is happening. It's happening mostly in Germany and Switzerland, so across the pond. America actually, as it sort of exists now, hasn't been discovered or founded yet. During the Reformation, a couple themes emerge philosophically that are going to affect this conversation and also socially. We talked a little bit last week about how we see those two phrases, this is my body, and do this in remembrance of me, leans pretty heavily on some of our experiences and then also the worldviews that we've either consciously or unconsciously inherited. And one of those things that sort of affects this conversation 
and affected the entire Reformation was the Enlightenment and the rise of secular humanism. Also, probably a third that I'd love to throw up there that I forgot to include would be the printing press. That changes everything, right? Because from our conversation earlier, where early Christians did not have access to the Bible, and again, that wasn't because the leadership didn't trust it with them or didn't want them to have it. It was just because it was so expensive and so difficult to reproduce 66 scrolls and kind of make sure everybody had one of those in their house. So the printing press, the enlightenment emphasis on the individual, which again is not a bad thing, we're coming out of, have you guys ever seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? So that's, that predates, that period piece sort of predates this, where you just have all these huddled masses that are, you know, cowering at the feet of the elite kings, and then a couple of the priestly class who sort of made it out of the mire. And so the Enlightenment's going to say, listen, like, you kind of kept us all down as a group, a group as a cluster, but this emphasis on the individual is going to give us freedom to sort of rise up as people, as families, uh, and say that we matter, not just as a class, but as a person. And, and secular humanism kind of piggybacks off that. So that spins away from Christianity and is saying, you know, Christianity was terribly oppressive of peoples. We need to be more individualized. And the Enlightenment is sort of like the larger time period. So that emphasis, a rise in the emphasis on the individual experience, is not in and of itself a bad thing. I think it's really great that we have the opportunity for ourselves to read the Bible and kind of test and approve different things that people are speaking, teaching, and say, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think that's definitely wrong. Like, we actually have that option now. I think that's a really good thing. Very happy to be an evangelical Protestant living when we are and have the freedoms that we do. However, one of the phrases, so I think you can make an argument that Martin Luther, who was a key reformer, he came up with this idea of the priesthood of all believers. Uh, and he came up with it from Scripture. Uh, he, he wasn't just pulling it out of thin air. He says, the priesthood of all believers. And this was sort of one of the battle cries of the Reformation. However, I think we should talk about what exactly that means. What is, have you guys ever heard that? Has anybody ever heard that before, priesthood of all believers? Yes? No? Maybe so? Um, anybody dare to try to explain to me what, what that means to them when they hear that? Yeah? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so a little bit of context, that's a great point. Um, so one of the points, one of the reformers' main points when they were pushing back and trying to reform, right, they were still sort of in the Roman Catholic Church. They were in the Church of the West at the very beginning of that. They were trying to reform, internally change some things, was that I don't think there has to be a priest, this is Martin Luther speaking, I don't think there has to be a priest standing between me and God. I think it's totally possible for me to come and confess my sins uh, and encounter, encounter the Lord through the Holy Spirit, which he's given me, which has indwelt in me. Luther sees that in Scripture and says, no, 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 no. That doesn't, no the power, some of the abuses of power that he was seeing in the Roman Catholic Church at that time, he's saying, this does not have to be because you as an individual, you as an individual, you as an individual, me as an individual, we can all approach God on our own. We don't have to go through a priest. So I think that's a great point. The one thing that I think I would clarify is that Luther, his good friend John Calvin, and others sort of in his tradition did not intend this to mean that we were all head pastors of a church or something to that effect. Um, that Luther still would have held back for other Protestant reformers the role of serving and giving communion to leadership in the local church, which had been recognized as understanding what was occurring, you know, what they were saying about Christ, what they were saying about the body. So I'm not making a value judgment whether he was right or wrong, but I do think we need to clarify that when he said that, he wasn't saying that, you know, everybody just, whenever you want, throughout the week, just do communion, and that counts. It's still supposed to be a very corporate thing for him. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, because people felt 
Yes. Absolutely. And so she was saying that when Luther coined this phrase or was really championing this strongly, he was trying to get at sin and redemption and repentance. Because there were some pretty, I think even if you went and approached a Roman Catholic priest today and asked him about the Roman Catholic Church at this time, he would say, yeah, there was definitely some abuses of power going on. Um, and one of those things was the idea of indulgences, like people paying for repentance of sin. Like you could kind of, you know, go and put a certain amount of money aside that would cover a certain amount of sin. Or you maybe even could put a certain money aside that prayers of intercessory would be prayed for those that had already been passed. And Luther's saying, no, 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 no. The priesthood of all believers means that when I sin, I can get down on my knees and repent and God hears me. But I think sometimes we run away with some of the individualism of that. That's all I'm trying to say is this is the water we're swimming in. Sometimes we run away with some of the individualism of that. And we land so strongly on like, I'm a priest, you're a priest, we're all priests. I can go to church, I can not go to church, I can listen to a podcast and then eat some bread and wine on my own. That counts because I'm a priest. And I, I think Luther would be confounded by that. Again, I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I'm just saying that if we're going like, to sort of use some of his language, we need to understand him on his own terms. Okay, so we're still in that Reformation age, that period between roughly 1550-1700. I think it's almost even fair to talk about Reformations, like they kind of happened in different places over time or spread out over a length of time. Um, so because of that, you know, because of their cultural situatedness and their distance from one another, once these group of leaders decided that something needed to be done to reform the Roman Catholic Church, the sort of logical progression was, you know, their thoughts were heard, their thoughts were rejected, they were excommunicated, and then they became Protestants. So this group of Protestants, which comes from the word protest, right, because they were deemed as being in protest of the church's authority, they're trying to get together, you know, this ragtag band of leaders is trying to figure out, okay, what do we do now? I mean, we're, we're outside, we still believe that we're in the right in the way that we're thinking and talking about these things. We definitely believe that you don't have to you know, pay to have your sins forgiven. We're all on board there. How do we talk about the Lord's Supper, which has been the central sort of hub of the church throughout the ages? How are we going to talk about that to make sure that we get that right for our people, our followers, that we're trying to lead in this tumultuous time and that are taking a big risk by following us outside of Western tradition for the last thousand years? So it's a big conversation. These guys are looking at a thousand years of established tradition and trying to figure out what they're going to do differently as they set up a new style of church. And so I want to talk about the views. We're going to start with the views, and then we're going to hit on the figures that kind of helped us develop these views. You may see throughout this spectrum some of the definitions and discussions you had last week, and I think it'll be interesting for you to try to pin you know, where you have landed or where you kind of resonate with some of these guys uh, on the way that they've, they've learned to or did learn to articulate what was happening at the Lord's table. So let's talk about a memorial view or a symbolic view. If we were on a spectrum of low church, which means low sacramental emphasis, to high church, very high sacramental emphasis, that's kind of the direction we're moving. So we're going to start from really symbolic sort of space all the way up to, you know, Roman Catholic traditional expression of what's happening. So the memorial view, sometimes called a symbolic view, Christ is not literally present in the elements, nor any special spiritual presence. The recipient commemorates what Christ did on the cross. So bear with me, the images are a little cheesy, um, and I, <laughs> but I think they help illustrate a point. So you have the elements, and then at the time of the reading of Scripture where Christ says, do this in remembrance of me, we're seeing the elements on stage, and we're remembering what Christ did on the cross. There's this process of remembrance. And do this in remembrance of me is a little bit of where that the emphasis is on the remembrance. So when the table, at the moment of the breaking of the bread and the blessing of the wine, what's happening from this perspective is that we're simply being called to remember what Christ did for us, but it is still special in a sense from other remembrances because we're all doing it together at the same time. 
So that, that, that's really the, the union focus component of that. You have the whole body, the whole local body, that expression together in this process of remembrance. And that's something special and unique from when we just read scripture and remember it on our own. So there's still a community focus, a communal, a communal focus in this perspective. Any questions there? This one I would think, just by a rough sort of gauge of temperature, should be fairly familiar to all of us. I mean, this is kind of part of what I grew up in um, and, and is part of um, even space here at New Life Downtown, the way that we celebrate communion. Ulrich Zwingli. So he was one of the reformers, contemporary with Luther. They were pretty tied on a lot of things, but on this they disagreed. And we'll see the Lutheran perspective here in a little bit. He said, it is symbolic and memorial, but should be practiced regularly. So he was really big on the idea that even though what's happening at the Lord's table is symbolic and memorial, it should still be practiced every week. It should be a part of the service because that's really what's tied Christians together throughout the ages and across time. This is the heart of Christian worship in many ways. Menno Simons. Instead of no-shave November, he did like no-shave his whole life. He was a pretty radical dude. Menno Simons led the Anabaptists. And if you guys have ever met a modern-day Mennonite, they stem from the sort of school of thought that Menno Simons founded. And then the Anabaptists, anybody care to guess sort of roughly what's developed out of Anabaptists? Baptists. So those two strands roughly develop in thought from Menno Simons and his leadership team. Uh, They were referred to as the Radical Reformers, which is a title that he probably would have bared with pride. Uh, They felt like, Menno Simons and some of his buddies, felt like Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, and Thomas Cramner, who we'll get to in a little bit, definitely did not go far enough in the way they were reforming against the Roman Catholic Church. So on that spectrum of highly sacramental to lowly sacramental, Meadow Simons is like, let's get out here and, and distance ourselves from all of this stuff, which is basically just works righteousness, and we're going to celebrate communion, um, you know, not every Sunday. Different churches within that tradition do it differently, so I don't want to speak for all of them. But he just really wanted to distance himself from that. Any questions on Meadow Simons or Zwingli and the... Even, just there, even there, we see a spectrum within the memorial symbolic view. There's a variety there. Reformed view. So we're talking about the Reformation, so sometimes this can get confusing, because reformed doesn't mean everybody, but for whatever reason, that was sort of the title or camp that was given to John Calvin. So he, he, you know, the Reformed Church in the United States, anybody ever to a CRC church, Christian Reformed Church? That's, that stems from John Calvin and the way that he saw the way that church should be done and the elements should be celebrated. So he believed, we'll get to him in a second, but this idea it really articulates a spiritual presence. So it's not saying on the one hand that it's only remembrance over here. It's just, it's just purely remembrance. It's also not saying over here that the bread and the wine literally turn into the body and blood of Christ. We're going to get that in a little bit. But it's saying that when you celebrate communion, there is this spiritual presence of Christ, this intimate reality that we can't fully articulate, but it's different than just eating a normal meal with other Christians. So here's our pictures again, um, which, by the way, I'd like to give a tip of the hat um, to one of my mentors, Brian Litvin, because he helped put together some of these images. Okay, so here we go. Spiritual presence. Christ becomes spiritually present with the elements. The bread and the wine are still bread and wine. But Christ is there in a spiritual way when we receive the bread and tinct it in the cup on Sunday morning. Take that. There's a way in which there's a spiritual intimacy we're having with God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit that we might not have otherwise. Any questions here? Yeah. Yeah, now that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that, because it's a great segue to John Calvin, who said this, The sacraments profit not a whit, 
without the power of the Holy Spirit. So all throughout that time, you know, think back a couple slides, we were talking about the Enlightenment. There's a lot of emphasis in that time period on intellectual pursuit, rationalism, scientificism, scientific. Scratch that. Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is like the champion of the Enlightenment. When you think about that, like the way someone works through the data very logically. But Calvin's like, yeah, we've got to look through the data very logically, as scientifically as possible. But it doesn't count. It's not worth a whit without the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must be present, is present with the church, is present with each of us, and also in a special way in the communion service. So that's a great question. Christ is the one that's present because it's his body and blood being broken. But the Holy Spirit is at the center of that, is driving that, is the means in some way towards that communion. So John Calvin, you'll see there on the right, I should have made that more clear. And this is Thomas Cranmer, who later, he came much later in the Reformation than Calvin, almost 100 years later, and Cramner was out in what is now the UK. He was out in England uh, and was sort of working with the leaders there to develop the Church of England, which became the Anglican Church, which became the Episcopal Church USA, which in turn sort of experienced a fracture recently. Now you have the Anglican Church, Anglican Mission in America. I know this is a lot of steps removed, but essentially Thomas Cranmer helped build the Anglican Church and that is the denomination in which Glenn is ordained. So some of our family tree stems from this later period of the Reformation in the early 1700s in England. And that's where we get much of our liturgy from. If you pay attention to the language in our liturgy and you open an Anglican book of common prayer, it'd be very similar. Yes? <laughs> he said, I wonder if this has anything to do with Glenn growing his beard. I don't know. I don't know. True confession, I'll have to admit that when I started graduate school and was studying all the church fathers, all the reformers, I realized that one of the keys to theological success probably was growing a beard. So I tried. Maybe Glenn has realized that as well. Um, but most of, the, most of the movers and shakers were on that beard. Any questions about this perspective? These are two of the men that have championed that in different ways. So you get the Reformed Church, like from John Calvin, we get Christian Reformed Church, Presbyterian Church. If you've ever been to a Presbyterian Church, they lean on his understanding of what's happening. If you've been to an Anglican or Episcopalian church in the United States, they lean a little bit more on Cranmer. So those are, those are just some of the figures. The dates aren't quite as important so much as we understand what they thought was happening. All right, a Lutheran view of the Lord's table. I bet you guys can guess who helped develop this. <clears throat> so Luther, you know, if we're on that spectrum, or in this, putting this view on this spectrum, we have... Anabaptists were really trying to distance themselves from the sacramental approach. Then you had sort of a memorial view. Then you had a spiritual view. And then this is a little higher church, a little more leaning into the sacrament uh, than those views, and not quite as much leaning into it as a Roman Catholic perspective. And the language here is consubstantiation. That word con, or that prefix con, comes from the Latin word for in with or under. Nailed it. And the idea here is a real presence. And so the ends of the spectrum are a little easier to define and understand, sometimes in the middle. But I'll try to illustrate this for us a little bit. For Luther, the preaching and the proclamation of the word, in addition to the presence of the Holy Spirit, was essential for this part of the service, which is why if you visit a Lutheran church, there, and in many churches, our church does this too, but there's an emphasis on reading the words of Christ at the Last Supper before the breaking of the bread. We piggyback on that, and so do many other churches, so that's not entirely unique to Lutheranism anymore. But early on, this was essential to this occurring. He saw a connection there that he wanted to make sure people knew. Reading of the word, proclamation over the elements, over the bread and the wine, and Christ is in, with, or under so if you backed up a couple slides in your mind to the spiritual presence, you notice that Christ was kind of there behind the elements, but it was a little more um, translucent. You could kind of see through him. That was the indicated spiritual presence. Here in some way, and I, I cannot explain this perfectly, and I've been trying to wrap my head around it for a long time, but the, the major thing is, is that you know, if this were the bread, my half-eaten bagel here, instead of the bread changing, 
Christ's body somehow is present under, around, or in without actually changing what this bread is. The bread does not change, but the body can be found in, with, under, or around it. Um, And that may seem sort of outside of our paradigm, and I'm not asking us to make a value judgment on it. I'm just asking that we try to understand what he was saying was occurring. For him, there's a little bit of a problem for Luther. For Luther, there's a little bit of a problem with transubstantiation, which we're going to get to here in a minute, um, because he felt like there's a, there's a sort of a philosophical gap with the bread and wine actually elementally changing. He just couldn't wrap his head around. He, he didn't see that happening. But from where he was situated, he felt like Christ's real presence, actual body and blood, was present in this experience somehow. Ad Fontes, simply another battle cry of the Reformation, uh, where he's calling out back to the sources. That's what that means in Latin, back to the sources, back to the beginning. So he leaned really heavily on Acts 2 and the church fathers as he's sort of developing his understanding. Uh, We talked about the priesthood of believers and we had that conversation about whether we're understanding him rightly. I'm not a Luther scholar, but in my humble opinion, what I would say is that I think we need to make sure we understand that Luther, except maybe for Menno Simons, all of these perspectives see a communal priestly or pastoral role in the presentation of the elements. Any questions here on Luther or Lutheranism? Have we gotten too in the thick of it? Is it or are we still tracking? Yeah. Totally. Yeah, so she said, for those of you who couldn't hear in the back, she said, so when they're talking about the table here from this perspective, are they saying that Christ is physically present or are they talking about the Holy Spirit? So Luther would say that, I think, this perspective is trying to articulate that Christ is there. Christ's literal body and blood was there. Which, so you know, I'm trying to map this out. You know, Luther's here, Christ's literal body and blood. So John Calvin was over here with spiritual presence and he actually had a Christological problem with that. Or he said that presents a problem about what we're saying about Jesus. In spiritual presence, there's this intimacy we're experiencing. But once you start moving over here, John Calvin would say, or Thomas Cranmer, our great-great-great-grandfather would say, whoa, you're sacrificing Christ again and again and again. And his body is already ascended into heaven. We saw the ascension. So to these guys and these perspectives, like that doesn't make sense. Like How can that be? Um, so that was a big sticking point for some of the more low church perspectives. And finally, Roman Catholicism, which is the idea of transubstantiation. Whereas Luther championed this idea of consubstantiation in, with, or under, the standard Roman Catholic expression of that during his day, and and to this day, was the idea of transubstantiation, which I'm sure some of us have heard of. When When I started digging into this as a student, I was really only aware of two perspectives, which was transubstantiation and memorial. And that, that, was, that was roughly it. There's either these two ideas. So, so for me, kind of the process of discovery of this spectrum was like really helpful. In this perspective, the bread and wine literally change into the body and blood of Christ. So to distinguish from Luther, where it's in, with, or under, this is, the bread is literally changing. Now if you went and asked an educated, uh, informed, theologically accurate, internally theologically accurate, Roman Catholic priest or bishop about this idea, they would have a much, much better explanation than I do now. Because for them, it's, it's loaded in a lot of careful language and a lot of different philosophical components. So while I don't really, I confess, I don't really fully understand this perspective, I think if you were curious about it, that there is a way in which they're able to navigate the bread and the wine as we still see it, and also the fact that that is literally the body and blood of Christ. The best example I can give of that, as I was trying to think about this, is the fact that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Neither of those two things are diminished by the incarnation. And they would say something similar maybe about the bread and wine, that neither the fact that it's 100% bread and wine and 100% Jesus is diminished. Does that parallel or illusion or illustration make sense at all? It's, it's difficult for me to wrap my mind around, 
But I think that's the best thing I can come up with, was the fact that Jesus' divinity and humanity were neither diminished in the incarnation. Also so with the bread and the wine here, and the body and blood of Jesus. So here you'll see more of a sacramental action of the priest, and then sort of bread and wine are still there, but they're fading out, and Jesus being sacrificed on the cross is the bread and the wine. Like, that is, that is happening at a mass. Like, they are reenacting the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. There's a lot loaded into that theologically. Again, I'm not asking us to make value judgments on it. I'm just asking us to understand the spectrum. So with that in mind, I think I wanted to kind of move into some conversations about synthesizing the spectrum, but I wanted to leave space for some questions about any of these pieces before we did that. Anything? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so for those of you that may not have heard that, I think that was a great point worth repeating, was the idea that um, we're looking at this, we're trying to find language, we're trying to kind of wrap it all up nicely in a bow. And back to Vincent Lorenz's comment earlier in the presentation, the idea that all Christians everywhere throughout all time, I don't know if we're going to land there. I certainly don't think we're going to land there this morning. Um, I, don't, I don't pretend to do that. But I think that's a great point, is that we have to leave some space. We're jumping way back, way back. But I think Augustine, who's one of my intellectual and spiritual heroes, had some great words to say about this that kind of brings a little bit of synthesis. Augustine lived roughly from 354 to 430 CE. And he described the sacraments, both baptism and the Lord's table, as an outward sign of an inward grace. I'm sure we have heard that language before. But there's this idea that we can't maybe parse it out perfectly, but there's this outward sign of an inward grace, an inward reality. And I really love that language. And also, I think it's one of the most ecumenical definitions we have. And by that I mean, if you sit down with anybody that you know, as we're striving for that unity, anybody that you know, along this spectrum, anybody that is a Christian friend, brother and sister, they're, they're going to gravitate in some way towards Augustine because he predates all of the schisms, all of the family trees, all of the scattering out of denominations, east and west. And in that sense, you know, we can kind of lean on that working definition, which should be helpful in conversation with most people. And I think could be declared, I don't want to speak for everybody, could be declared rather easily for most an outward sign of an inward grace. And you were just hinting at this earlier when you you made that comment about we're trying to wrap everything up neatly, tie it all up in a bow and say this is what is happening. We have to leave space for mystery. And sometimes I think that gets leaned on a little too heavily in, in Christian conversation, but this is one space certainly where I think it is incredibly helpful. I love this sort of working parsing out of the table. And I think I've landed here frequently if all the people here were celebrating communion together, regardless of what we believe, that which is happening is happening. So whether I think it's one thing and you think it's another, if we're celebrating it together, that doesn't actually change the divine reality of what's happening at the table. I may be completely wrong, you may be completely wrong, we may both be partially right, but whatever's happening at the table is happening at the table. We can't change that. You know, the power does not lie with us. It lies with God's presence in that time. Secondly, and just to remind ourselves of why this is important to think about, is that we are called to be believers in faith, seeking understanding. It is important for us to seek to understand things. I had a professor that used to talk about it this way, and I thought it was really helpful um, in the way that we talk about God. We talk about his table. We talk about different things. You know, if you had a sister... She went out on a blind date with a guy. And this guy was like, yeah, no, I I really like you. I just don't care to really know anything more about you. You'd probably wonder a little bit if your sister should go out with that guy again. And I think the same is true of us. We may not perfectly ever wrap our heads around it, but if we truly love God and we're confessing that, there's this way in which we're going to want to know him 
and the way he expresses himself and the way we experience him a little more deeply. But we have to be humble enough to confess that we're never going to understand it fully or perfectly. And this is why I love this. This language of mystery is something I think Glenn is really comfortable with because he gives a lot of space for us on Sunday morning. He's not attempting to parse it out for us. He says, this is the mystery of the faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ has come again. And we all celebrate that together at the table. Um, So I love that language. I love that part of the liturgy because even though we don't know exactly what is happening perfectly, we do know this, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So I wanted to try to kind of land us a little bit there, but also see if anybody had any questions to wrap up in conversation. All right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So he says in our in our communion service, which we'll see this morning if we you know attend the latter service, there's a point at which Glenn is blessing and breaking the elements, and he asks us to extend our hands as a community. Um, I don't want to speak for Glenn what he's thinking when that's going on, but I think traditionally, if I, if I tried to, what I'd say is that we're, it's an act of our, our participation. It's, another, it's like an embodied gesture that we're all in. Like we're all doing this th- thing together. We're all in the communion table together. And sometimes I like to think about it as a point of prayer too because there is this way in which we're communing together that it, it's like the extension of kind of the Holy Spirit towards that table. And that's the best way I can talk about it. But, I mean, we all, as believers, have the Holy Spirit. So not only are we saying we're in, we're participating in this, but it's also we're, we're participating in this through the Holy Spirit, and we're all at the table. We're all there when those elements are being broken. Mystery. <laughs> also, too. That, that's my best explanation, though. So, Any other questions about how we do things on Sunday morning or why the way they, they look that they do? Yeah. Right here. Yeah. That's a that's a great question. I may actually defer to Brian on that one. So Brian, thanks, Brian. So I think that was really helpful, even for me to hear. It sounds like the sort of consensus is the way things that would hopefully work here is if you're coming to the table, you're a believer. It is a table for believers. Whether you've been baptized or not, it seems like there's space for that here. But it also seems in some ways logical that you would have received baptism before coming to the table. It's not a hindrance. It's not going to keep you from it. But if you've not been baptized, I would encourage you to do that. I mean, of the, of the commands Christ left us towards the end of his time on earth, one of them was do this in remembrance of me. And one of them was go forth to all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. So this idea of baptism and communion as kind of working together as a part of our faith, it's really there. So, Yeah. I saw a hand back here. Last question. Yeah. In the early believers in the early 
Hmm. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And I think we need to go back to the authentic. Absolutely. <laughs> so she's saying that, you know, I'm not probably going to capture this perfectly, but no, that, that was a great comment. So she's saying looking at Acts, you know, the early disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, reading of scripture, breaking of bread, gathering together, and there was a sense of unity in that. And I there, there was. There definitely was in one sense. However, we also see Peter and Paul at odds with each other, like rebuking each other in the New Testament over teaching, and then sort of John Mark, the issue with John Mark coming along. Sure. So I think if we're going to look anywhere to define what unity should look like, I'm with you that we have to land on the New Testament. Absolutely. No, no, that's, that's a great point. That's a great point. I appreciate that, that we should be praying for unity now. And I agree. So we've kind of reached, we're at 1030, right? Yeah, we've kind of reached our threshold here. So we're going to hang back if any of you guys want to come chat afterwards. Otherwise, I want to dis- dismiss you with enough time to kind of catch a breather before we run into service. Thank you guys so much for your time. I really appreciate that. Let me send you out with a quick, quick prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that we do not understand this mystery fully, but that we love you very much and we experience you in it. Help us to turn our hearts to you even this morning as we come to your table and the proclamation of your word and the communion of all believers. We pray these things in your son's name and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.